This morning, we're in the third week of our series called Weaklings, where we've been camping out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're looking at some of the ways that weakness is our greatest weakness and our greatest strength, because it's there where we most clearly see the power and grace of Christ at work in us and in our story. But I get it. A series on weakness is a bit intense. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I want to talk about today? I want to talk about suffering and weakness and pain. That's just crazy. We're taught to look on the bright side and to see the glass as being half full. Given the choice, we would way rather choose joy over sadness. We like positive people. And we're Canadian, so we're almost cultural professionals at avoiding things that are uncomfortable and hedging everything in politically correct politeness. So when I say that being weak is a good thing in God's story for our lives, it's not surprising if you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I feel a bit resistant to this idea. I'm a bit of a type A, high-achieving perfectionist, and I've spent most of my life avoiding weakness. I wanted to be the strong one who had it all together. But here's the deal. As much as we want to be positive and to focus on strength and goodness, we are all well aware that that is not what life looks like. We're all personally and brutally aware that things in our lives and in this city and around the globe aren't as they should be. Things are really, really broken. Whether it's our hearts or relationships or social structures and social issues, life is hard. And so when we say that weakness is a way to be embraced within Christian life, I think we should actually be really encouraged. It means that the Christian life isn't some utopian outlier to real life as it unfolds around us. The call of following and knowing Jesus isn't one where we have to stand separate from weakness. It's actually an invitation to step into and acknowledge the weakness and find that even there, we are not alone. That our God isn't removed from pain and struggle and suffering, but he's one who stepped into, us, into it and anchored us in something far more beautiful beyond the pain. And I say all of this this morning fully realizing that if I'm going to stand here and talk about weakness being beneficial and even good, then I have to own these words. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of my story this morning as we look at these three verses. Because these verses invite us to consider how our own, our own stories and the places where God has met us in our weakness. But I also do not in any way stand before you looking at these verses as one who has any of this figured out. I need these words today. This past week alone has been a bit of a roller coaster, and I have needed the constant reminder that our weakness is a gift and that our suffering is meaningful. I've clung to these promises with desperation. And as if hilariously on cue with preaching about suffering being light and momentary, I've had multiple and terrible migraines this past week, and on Tuesday I came home to find my kitchen completely covered in mud, my landlord and a plumber frantically trying to fix an emergency a plumbing emergency from the suite next to mine, and there's a gaping hole in my wall. Lesson learned. Be careful what you preach on, because you'll likely have to live it out. And yet, even with pain and weakness, in these verses, we find the stunning promise of a God who does not abandon us. And the promise that as hard as it may seem, suffering is momentary, suffering is light, and suffering is meaningful. 
And we find the enduring promise that there is far more going on here than meets the eye. So let's dive in, starting with verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 16 anchors itself solidly in the place of suffering. Paul acknowledges that this not losing heart and being renewed day by day are happening simultaneously with weakness and struggle in the very place of the process of our bodies wasting away. I like to think of Paul writing these as words as a war reporter on the front lines of conflict. These words weren't removed from suffering. They were happening right in the heat of it. And yet we also immediately see that Paul makes some pretty audacious claims in these verses. He appears to have found the secret that virtually everyone in the world wants to discover, the secret of not losing heart in the midst of suffering. John Piper called these verses the epitome of the secret that nobody wants and the secret that everybody wants. But the secret that Paul clings to and proclaims here isn't some self-motivated motivational jargon. There's something far deeper here than some optimistic strategy. Paul knew that he was dying, and he knew that everybody is dying. He had experienced tremendous suffering. He knew on a personal level that the world was broken. He saw the weakness and sickness and injuries and hardships and pressures and frustrations and disappointments that surround us on all sides. And every one of these things cost Paul a piece of his life. Suffering was deeply woven into his story. I find this really comforting, actually. The last thing that any of us want is for some naive, overly optimistic theorists to start telling us about some advice about not losing heart. If you're like me, you'd probably listen, smile, and nod politely, all the while thinking, what makes you think you have this authority? You've never walked in my shoes, and you don't know my story. But Paul does have this authority. This secret has come at a great cost to him. To learn this, Paul has had to live it. Look at Paul's own description of his journey in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my concern for all the churches. And yet, knowing that this is what Paul had lived, how on earth can Paul write with confidence that therefore we do not lose heart? Roger spoke on verses 7 through 15 last week, but it's important to look back and see some of the things that lead us into the therefore at the beginning of verse 16. In verse 7, we have a treasure of Christ and his gospel in weak bodies so that all of the glory goes to God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In verses 8 through 9, we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Therefore, 
we do not lose heart. In verse 10, when we carry about in our body the dying of Jesus, the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In verse 14, God will raise us from the dead with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And then verse 15, through our suffering, grace extends to more and more people and increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Essentially, Paul is calling to mind the character and the faithfulness of God. He's looking back and he's looking ahead, sandwiching his current weakness in suffering and who he's known God to be in the past and the promises of God moving forward. And so he writes in verses 17 and 18, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The substance of what Paul is trying to say is found in these verses. Our suffering is momentary. Our suffering is light. And our suffering is meaningful. So let's look at these one at a time. First of all, suffering is momentary. One of the most audacious things about the Christian faith is that when we put our hope in the life, death, resurrection, and eventual return of Jesus, we're actually banking everything that we know and believe on the unseen reality that death is not the end. But we have to be careful here when we talk about suffering being momentary. It doesn't mean that suffering is short-lived. Athletes are constantly aware of numbers and time clocks. When I played soccer, I knew that I had to persevere and put my body on the line for 45 minutes in the first half, get a break at the half, and then go back at it for 45 minutes more in the second. But at the end of 90 minutes, it was over. The ice could come out, the rest and the recovery could begin. The challenge and the struggle and the competition was predictable and momentary. But that's not the kind of momentary that Paul is talking about here. He's not promising that our suffering and our weakness will be short-lived. As much as we may want it to be, there isn't a clear timeline on suffering or a guarantee of when it will end. But our afflictions will end. They will not have the last say in our lives. Because when we proclaim and we believe that Jesus beat death, we're staking a claim in the reality that Christ, what Christ has ultimately won for us in eternity by conquering death, is way better than the cost of all of the struggles that we pay, face right now in our present. And so essentially what Paul is asking us to do is to look past the present and the temporary into the eternal. We have no guarantee that our suffering will end in this life, but one day it will end for good. But let's take a step back here. We live in a world that runs on a dominant narrative that tells it that this life is all there is. Our culture embraces the mantra of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. We're told that we have one life, so we better live it well. And while there's an element of truth to this, the days of our lives are numbered, and we do well to live with intention and joy and purpose while we're here. One of the fundamental marks of the Christian faith is that we are not yet home. That what we see and feel and touch here isn't all that there is. John Foreman said it poetically like this, This world is where I breathe, but let it never be called home. 
And so we're constantly waiting and aching for the world beyond this one. We can live fully here with no guilt in life, but we hold tightly to the win-win reality that there is no fear in death and that to live is Christ and to die is gain, which actually makes us able to live and view this world in a different way and frames our suffering in a different and ultimately momentary light. A new day is coming. One day all things will be made right again. And I'll admit, I'm a happy endings girl. Uh, I like to think of it as being a hopelessly hopeful romantic. Uh, I hate the middle books and middle movies and trilogies because there's no resolution. And even though I know that the journey is the most important, of any, most important part of any story and that neat resolution doesn't always happen, I frequently skip to the end of movies and books looking for a happy ending. And so when my dad was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the fall of my grade 12 year, I started reading Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, on a daily basis. Because even with all of the questions and the hurt and the fear about what was happening around me, I needed to know that there was a glorious and beautiful ending to all of this. I read those words over and over and over because I needed to know that even if I couldn't see it, that someday pain would end. I read these same chapters and bawled on a rooftop in Cambodia when I got the call that my grandma had passed away. And a few months later in an apartment in Israel when I got the news that my Oma had died. I read it on the cold December morning in Ottawa when I had to say goodbye to my grandpa. And a few weeks ago when my Aunt Ellie passed away. I've read and reread those two chapters almost every day in the past five years as cancer has forced my family to bury eight people. Because I think there's something about suffering that points us to, to eternity in a way that nothing else can. Where the best words that we can possibly hear are the promise that someday God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the message translation, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this. There is far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today but gone tomorrow. But the things that we can't see will last forever. And so we do not lose hope because our suffering is temporary. And then Paul goes on to say something else that seems even more crazy. And that is that our suffering is light. Wait, what? Suffering is light? Is Paul insane? Let's be real here, nothing about my pain and suffering has felt light. When I walked out of the hospital room on the day that my dad died, it felt like my world was collapsing around me. I felt like I couldn't breathe. And every funeral and goodbye that my family has had to face since has felt like a punch to the stomach and an ache that won't subside. God has been so faithful. He has been our steady anchor. But calling suffering light? I don't think so. One of my primary areas of research in my academic career has been refugee studies and genocide. In the past few years, I've immersed myself in the events, policies, and reconstructive initiatives surrounding events in Cambodia, Rwanda, South Africa, the former Yugoslavia, and more recently in Somalia, Darfur, and Syria. And I'll be honest, it nearly broke me completely. All of my, let's step into the darkness with hope, 
resolve was slowly eroded by stacks of cases and reports of structural discrimination, rape as a weapon of war, and statistics so staggering that they made me want to throw up. A bit over a year ago, I was preparing for the LSAT, dreaming of becoming an international human rights lawyer, and ramping up to finish my master's degree. But I started having panic attacks as I would study. I would try to read refugee asylum cases, and I would burst into tears in the middle of the library because it felt way too overwhelming. I would read reports in international criminal court files, and I would run to the washroom because I had to throw up. Anxiety attacks became a normal part of my life. And because of it, I had to start taking long breaks from my research in a school, and I eventually took a leave of absence from finishing my thesis. In the midst of all this, I clung to faith with desperation, but I struggled to reconcile these very verses. How in the world can we stand in the midst of refugee camps with millions of displaced peoples because of violence and war and say that suffering is light? How can we look at the, at the mother of a starving child in the eyes and say that suffering is momentary? How do you tell the parents of a stillborn child that suffering is light? In a world of rape and war and death and disease and sickness and heartache, aren't we a little bit foolish and maybe even cruel to say these things? But, and this is the crucial thing here, when Paul says that his afflictions are light, he does not mean that they are easy or painless. He's trying to communicate that in comparison to what is coming, they are light. Compared to the weight of glory that lies ahead, they are like feathers on a scale. Again, in the message translation, Peterson says it like this. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration that God has prepared for us. Let's sit in this for a second because this changes everything. If the weight of all of life's pain and weakness in struggle is like feathers in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. This glory that is coming must be so beyond compare. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to convey. The majesty and glory and compassion and character of Christ is so beyond our comprehension that the comparative weight of it makes all of our pain look like feathers. Paul actually says something similar in Romans 8.18 where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suggesting that the glory that lies ahead is so beyond that the comparison isn't even worth our time. Maybe it's a little bit like drinking terrible, cheap, instant coffee and then realizing that glorious, full-bodied, perfectly roasted, French-pressed ground, creme-on-top coffee exists in the world. The first pales in comparison to the second. Or like a young boy growing up in the slums of Bogota playing soccer with a ball made of crumpled up newspaper and goals made of garbage, who goes on to play in world-class stadiums with the best gear and trainers and thousands of screaming fans. The first just pales in comparison with the second. Our pain is brutal. I'm never going to say otherwise. But as hard as it is, what is coming when God renews and redeems and restores all things will be worth 
more than all of our pain and hurt and weakness combined. In comparison to the matchless and incomprehensible beauty of Christ, our suffering is indeed light. And finally, our suffering is meaningful. Do you remember those moments growing up when your parents would make you do some pretty awful chore or unglamorous task and justify it with a statement of, this will be a character-building experience? <laughs> My parents used that one all the time, especially early in the morning when our driveway needed to be shoveled of snow. And apparently my brother and I, my brothers and I needed a lot of character building. So when we first hear that suffering is meaningful, that's where our minds may want to go. But if we go there, we miss the beauty of this. Because suffering for the Christian is not arbitrary. Suffering for the follower of Christ is an opportunity to lean into the faithfulness of a God who never changes and never fails us. Suffering gives us an eternal perspective that we wouldn't naturally look towards without the discomfort of pain or loss. And it's an opportunity to look forward with renewed vision for the promises and the life of what's to come. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller said it like this. Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. When we walk through deep sorrow and we find ourselves raw and broken before God, we become tangibly aware that we need something beyond ourselves. When we reach the end of our own understanding, suffering can show us how desperately we need the promise and vision of God that reaches beyond ourselves and beyond this temporary life. Suffering shows us in really personal and really real ways that things are broken here and that we desperately need a God who can reach into this brokenness with enduring hope. I don't say this lightly because I know that these things are hard to convey adequately with words, but I have become more captivated by the character and goodness and steady grace of Jesus because of all of the places in my story where it looks like death and sickness and injury have dominated the narrative. I am more in love with him now than I was before my world seemed to systematically implode around me. Not because things haven't in any way been easy, but because suffering and weakness has a knack for pulling away some of the ideas and places and people we can hide behind, and then our eyes can see Christ more clearly. And so maybe more than anything, our suffering is, is meaningful because it opens our eyes to see God's unchanging character. He's the God who sits in the midst of the hurt with us. The Savior who doesn't miss a single tear that we cry or frustrated question that we throw in his direction. He's a God who walks with us through seasons of hurt and confusion. And in every moment where hope seems hard to find, his presence surrounds us, and he promises that there is more going on here than meets the eye. Because Jesus beat death, he conquered the grave, and because he did that, hope is never lost. Something spectacular is on the horizon. Something eternal and endlessly and perfectly good is just around the corner. Whatever you're facing, 
it is not meaningless. Heartache, pain, disappointment, weakness. God is with you. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. And so now we come back around to the upside-down reality that weakness is actually strength. I went to the concert of one of my favorite artists, Josh Gerrels, this past Thursday night at the Vogue Theater. And in a question and answer session before the show, somebody asked him why so many of his songs, though raw and vulnerable, have such a strong undercurrent of hope. I found his response really beautiful and profound. He said, I write about hope because it's something that I need, not necessarily because it's something I have figured out. It's a mountain in the distance that I'm constantly walking towards, but I'm not there yet. So I write about it because I need to remind myself of it constantly. We need to remind ourselves of it constantly. Our weakness is constant, but so is Christ's strength. Our hearts are quick to wander, but his grace is quick to welcome us home. Our minds are tempted to despair, but his hope roots us back in something far beyond what we understand. And so weakness is our greatest gift, and it is our greatest witness, because it forces us to constantly re-anchor ourselves in Christ, knowing that on our own, we crash and burn. Weakness shows us that we need to continually, every moment and every day and every hour, refix our eyes on him. Look back at verse 18 here and the way that it invites us into this. Remember, remember the power of God and the life of his son are manifested in your weakness. The life of Jesus is flowing through your suffering into the lives of other people. God sustains you in your afflictions and will not let you be destroyed. Your afflictions will not have the last word. You will rise from the dead with Jesus and live in joy forever and ever. Your afflictions are momentary. They are only for now, not for the age to come. Your afflictions are light. Compared to the pleasure of what is coming, they are nothing. And these afflictions are producing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Remember, look at these future unseen glorious things. Think about them. Set your mind on them. Meditate on them. Memorize them. Preach these things to yourself. Rehearse these truths until they resound in you louder than anything else. Reroute and reestablish yourself here, day by day, over and over and over. Our suffering is meaningful and temporary and light because Jesus' suffering wasn't temporary and it wasn't light. He gave his life over to death. He took on all that we couldn't handle. He allowed his light to be extinguished by darkness. He drank the full weight of God's punishment, and his suffering was beyond what we can fathom. Jesus bears the scars of the cross in eternity. And when he conquered death once and for all by rising from the dead, he anchored our present suffering in a new light. Because of his victory over death, we may suffer, but we are not defeated. We may be pressed on all sides, but we do not give up. Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside God is making new life, and not a day goes by without his unfolding grace.